Do you make a yearly appointment to see your doctor to get a complete physical? You know, the kind where your doctor looks you over from head to toe, pokes and prods, and takes like a gallon of blood out, you know, uh, to get it analyzed for every possible disease? I hope so. Uh, sometimes folks are afraid of that kind of an examination because they don't want to hear any bad news, like the proverbial ostrich. They uh, would rather have their head in the sand and kind of just hope that if there is a problem, it will just go away on its own. I understand that feeling. I had a little cancer scare about a month ago where I had to get a biopsy of my tongue. You know, not pleasant at all. And in my line of work, you know, this is the moneymaker, right? So I had some nervous days waiting for the results. But early detection is everything, and so it's better to face it sooner rather than later. Now, thankfully, my results were negative. There's no cancer. But as uncomfortable as it was, it's better to know. It's been my custom on the Sunday of our annual congregational meetings to use this message as a time to examine where we are as a church and where we might be headed, sort of an annual checkup for the church. And it's important in this yearly examination to be able to look at the good and the not so good in our church body. We don't want to put our heads in the sand and get blindsided by some big problem, but we also don't want to just go negative, which is so easy to do in our world today. So easy, really, to be critical and snarky and think that we know what everybody else ought to be doing instead of looking at our own actions and attitudes as followers of Jesus. So for today, I would want to use a simplified case study approach. Now, a case study is when you use the facts and data from a real-life situation to explore principles or trends that might apply to your situation. Lawyers and doctors, MBA programs, often use the case study method in their education. And for our case study, I'd like us to look at the First Presbyterian Church of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now, this is one of the flagship churches in our denomination, the ECO, ECO, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians. In fact, it was the very first church to join ECO and really led the way for the other 400-plus churches like us who joined in afterwards. Its senior pastor, Jim Singleton, has a national reputation as a solid man of God, a, a clear thinker, and the right demeanor to lead the negotiations with the national staff of our former denomination so that the departing, departure for all the other churches joining ECO could be as plain, painless as possible. First Pres is an old church by Colorado standards. It was founded in 1872 by a pioneer missionary named Sheldon Jackson who was a legend in Presbyterian circles because he started 110 churches from Arizona all the way to Alaska. In his career, Sheldon Jackson traveled over a million miles preaching and planting churches. I mean, he was like a 19th century Apostle Paul. He was a beast for church planting. And he wrote in his journal, God blesses aggressiveness. We need to cultivate an aggressive spirit, an asking of God for great things, with an expectation of great things from God, and an attempting of great things for God. His boldness was kind of built into the fabric of First Press, and they grew to become one of the largest churches in that part of the country. In 2008, they had 4,700 members, with about 2,600 people in worship each Sunday. They see themselves as a historic church with a modern mission. So they have great contemporary worship, great traditional worship, in some ways following the same worship philosophy that we've adopted in offering multiple types of Christ-centered worship. 
They've got all kinds of small groups, great children's, youth ministry, solid discipleship programs, very active in local and global missions, just a great congregation. And their facility, it just makes me drool. It takes up an entire block in downtown Colorado Springs. Plus they own a number of adjoining buildings that they use for youth and conference centers and the like. Back in January, ECO had its national gathering there because most churches don't have a sanctuary big enough to handle that kind of crowd. And in 2012, when First Press voided, voted to join ECO as the very first church, they had a 94% positive vote. Not quite as good as our 98%, but still impressive. So what's happened in the years since First Press, in the last 10 years? You would expect that all that momentum, all those strengths, all those positive things would just lead them on to further growth for the kingdom, right? I mean, in the bold spirit of Sheldon Jackson, they would just kind of keep on steamrolling ahead. Except that in the last 10 years, their membership has dropped 34%, from 4,700 to 3,200 members. Their Sunday worship attendance has dropped 22%, from 2,600 people to 2,000 weekly worship. And their giving has dropped 5.5%. They are facing some serious challenges that did not exist 10 years ago. Despite all their boldness for God, they have hit some serious hurdles that they're going to have to address, and they can't just put their heads in the sand. So what are some of the issues that they're facing? First, an aging congregation. The average age of their members is now 63. And so that makes it harder to be attractive to the 30-somethings and the 20-somethings. Their older baby boomer congregation members are starting to retire. And when they retire, <clears throat> they move away to Arizona, to Florida, to someplace without all the snow. And when they go, they take their money with them, and that affects the church's finances. They have a lot of folks who are empty nesters, and once their kids have grown and moved out of the house, many of these empty nesters feel like they're kind of done with church, that they were in it mainly to get their kids through, and so they did their part. They volunteered when asked, but it was sort of like with the PTA. You know, now that their kids are through, they're done. Church involvement is not a high priority. And then there's lo their location. They're a downtown church. And though the downtown has gone through a great renewal, most families now move into the suburbs. And to drive to this historic center city church, the suburban folks have to pass a lot of shiny new non-denominational megachurches that are located on the outskirts of town who are eager to kind of scoop up any stray sheep from the downtown congregations. And so instead of reaching new people, often the non-denominational churches just kind of reshuffle the same deck as people church shop and church hop, looking for convenience or something new to keep them pumped up about their faith. There are plenty of other factors that the leaders of First Press have identified, but the one big one is simply a big downturn in how often their committed members attend worship. Because our culture really no longer holds Sunday mornings as sacred, a tidal wave has really hit churches all across the country when it comes to worship attendance. According to a study just released by Lifeway, the research and publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Church, 15 years ago, the average committed church member attended church 3.1 times per month. So that means if you had a church of 1,000 members, your average work, weekly worship attendance was 775. Today, according to their study, the average committed church member attends Sunday worship 1.95 times per month, which means for that same 
church of 1,000 people, their average worship attendance would now drop to 488 per week. The math says you've lost 37% of your people. But in reality, in reality, you still have 1,000 people. They just don't come as often. Why the big shift in attendance at First Press Colorado Springs? Number one thing, Sunday morning is no longer sacred. Children's activities just consume their families' weekends, and attending church has become less of a priority than swim meets, soccer games, volleyball tournaments, you name it. There's always something else now to do. Nowadays, every weekend, some good cause has a Sunday morning 5K run that just kind of siphons off just a certain number of individuals or families who skip church that day to participate because they support that good thing. If it was just once and done, it really wouldn't have much impact. But everybody has gotten into the act, and there's some kind of charity function virtually every Sunday morning. And the cumulative effect of that, of all these good projects, it actually hurts the church. And one last factor, the relative affluence of their congregations allows more and more people to just go away for the weekend for recreation. They go skiing in the winter, they go camping in the summer, it's all good stuff but it reflects a shift in priorities for church folks. They still consider themselves to be committed Christians. They just don't go to church as often as before. The collective impact is that because people don't go to church as often, they don't volunteer like they used to because they don't want to be committed, and they don't give financially from their first fruits. They give from their leftovers because their money is going elsewhere to fund all these other activities. So what does all that about First Presbyterian Church of Colorado Springs have to do with us? Well, we parallel all of those same problems and issues, every single one of them. Not to the same percentages, but all those challenges are our challenges as well. An aging congregation, baby boomers retiring, moving away, empty nesters dropping out, people opting to attend non-denominational churches for a variety of reasons, younger families who are overwhelmed with children's activities, affluent folks who just want to get away on weekends, other activities crowding into Sunday mornings. I mean, we have a 5K practically every Sunday of the summer, like last week's Sharing Network 5K right here in New Providence. It's a great cause. But that means just a good number of our folks either spent the morning participating in the event or they couldn't get out of their neighborhood because the streets were blocked off. That affects our worship. It affects our stewardship. Our measurable statistics are all down for membership, worship attendance, and financial giving. And yet we know this church is amazingly alive. I mean, it is just a beehive of great ministry throughout the week. So it's hard to know how do you reconcile those two realities. So the key thing to keep in mind, and this is hard for the people who only look at numbers, the key thing to keep in mind is knowing our mission and being true to our purpose. What is our mission as a congregation that seeks to follow Jesus Christ? Our purpose is to make committed disciples of Christ who are inwardly strong and outwardly focused. That's our mission statement, our purpose. And in fact, it's really the purpose of, of every biblical church is to make disciples. New disciples, meaning people who put their faith in Christ for the very first time, and to help people who already know Christ to mature and to grow in their faith, to grow as disciples. And if we do that, if we make committed, growing, flourishing disciples, we will impact the world locally and globally for Christ. We will have stronger families, healthier marriages, kinder, more compassionate people, who are loving their world for Christ's sake, people who 
feed on Scripture, who care for each other, who pray with passion, who serve their community, who make a difference where they work, who, who really shine as lights for Christ in a dark world. People of hope who share the love of Jesus. You see, our purpose is not just to get butts in seats on Sundays. As a pastor from Queens said just recently, it's not about building weekly good church goers, but rather developing men and women who know that they are in Christ Jesus, who know who they are in Christ Jesus, and who are serving him with their whole hearts. You know, in talking with the leaders at First Press, they look at their church participants in two ways, what you might call phase one people and phase two people. Phase one people are involved because they like something about the church. They like the preaching, they like the children's ministry, they like the historic feel, the style of worship, the music. There's some program or some person that they've connected with and that's why they attend the church. But if that thing or that person changes or that program changes, they'll leave the church. If the music changes, if the pastor leaves, if a teenager doesn't like the youth director, if they get bored with their small group Bible study, if they don't feel spiritually jazzed up like they used to, uh, if they don't feel fed spiritually, they'll drop out. Basically, they have kind of a consumer mentality to, towards the church, saying the church provides goods and services that I want, but if any of those things don't meet my expectations, I'm out. Phase one people make up about 70% of their attenders. Phase two people, they're in the church because they're committed to the mission of the church. Phase two people look beyond their own needs to the needs of the community and the importance of spreading the gospel. That's their highest priority, not themselves, but God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom expressed through this local church. So if the music isn't like it was in the past or a beloved church staff member leaves or something else changes, they don't just pack their bags and hit the trail. No, they are all in. They are committed to the mission of the church, believing God has called them to serve at that particular congregation regardless of changing circumstances. Now, First Press Colorado, they've got to minister to both phase one and phase two people. And one of the biggest differences between phase one and phase two people is their sense of expectation, what they expect the church to do for them. Phase two people have reached the point in their spiritual journey where they really don't expect all that much from the church's programs. They have become self-feeders from a spiritual point of view. This is one of the conclusions of the massive reveal study that was done about a decade ago with some 20,000 congregations, including ours. Phase one folks sort of expect the church to keep them happy, keep them engaged by constantly starting new programs, splashy worship, dynamic and entertaining preaching. They look to the church to provide everything they need to grow and to be happy as believers. And if the person's faith isn't where it should be, if they're struggling, if they're unhappy, or they just don't feel like they're growing, or they don't feel as close to the Lord as they used to, it's the church's fault. The church isn't giving me what I need, so I'm out. Phase two folks look at things very differently. They are spiritual self-feeders who don't rely on church programs or personnel to keep them engaged in their faith relationship with Jesus Christ. They take responsibility for their own spiritual health. And according to the research, these self-feeders have three key characteristics about their faith that keep them engaged. One, they take responsibility for their daily devotional life. 
They cultivate good spiritual habits of personal prayer and Bible study. And they don't expect the church to make that happen for them. They do it for themselves. Two, they have a small group of close Christian friends, and that's their main source of Christian fellowship. They participate in other church-sponsored Bible studies and programs, but their main source of fellowship is not necessarily run by the church. They have developed their own fellowship circle, and that's where their needs are met. Three, they have found their place of service. Phase two people know their spiritual gifts. They know what feeds their soul. They know what their passion is, and they want to give away their faith through serving. They don't volunteer for everything, but what they do volunteer for, they see as a real calling from God, and they serve in that capacity with all their hearts. So a personal devotional life, a small group of committed Christian friends, a place to serve, that's what makes up phase two people. And what's interesting, according to the study, is that the people who are the most dissatisfied with their church are those who have been there the longest, but who have never become phase two people. They've been in the church for a long time and still expect the church to jazz them up, pump them up, keep their faith going in the right direction. And when it doesn't, eventually they become disgruntled because at a certain point the church can't keep people happy like that unless the church is constantly going with gimmicks and shtick and hype to try and keep people jazzed up. And at that point, is the church really making disciples or are we perpetually making spiritual immaturity? Like I said our, earlier, our congregation is facing all of these same challenges as in the case study. And we need to prayerfully and thoughtfully seek the Lord and put our best efforts into addressing the situation. And there's one more way in which we parallel First Press Colorado Springs. Their pastor retired. And as many of you know, I've announced to the elders that I believe God's timing is right for me to retire from being your senior pastor in about two years at the end of August in 2021. And I'm saying that now because in ECO, they really want to help local churches do succession planning the right way. And two years is not too long to get that succession planning process started so that the handoff of leadership to a new senior pastor can happen in a healthy way that will actually boost the momentum of the church. And you can read more about that in my annual report. And I'd encourage you to come tonight to the congregational meeting to hear an introductory report from our succession planning team. Two years is a long time. And I'm committed to not letting our church slide into some kind of, you know, lame duck hibernation. God has a lot for us to do right now. I know I want to focus my attention on developing a building block process for our adult discipleship so that someone who is new in Christ can grow their faith in kind of a step-by-step -step systematic way. That excites me, and, and we really need it. I'm excited to work with our elders on some of our other issues that we're currently facing, especially financial stewardship. Now, we're in a good place financially because we have very healthy cash reserves, but our giving is down, and we really don't want to have to go into deficit spending unless we absolutely have to. Your elders are committed to leading by example in their own stewardship, and your elders have pledged to increase their individual giving by $53,000 over the next year. I am so proud of them for making that kind of commitment. I hope it will inspire you and maybe stir you up to make a similar examination of your giving. The summer slump is coming, 
and we need to, we don't want to end the year in the red. And so we need your help to do so. Something for you to pray about. But what we really need to do as a congregation is to rediscover the joy of sharing our faith with others. That, to me, is the most important challenge. Not programs, not worship styles, not rearranging the schedule. It's recovering the joy of sharing Jesus with others. Like I said in my sermon on the bread of life a few weeks ago, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what I love about the story of the Samaritan woman that you heard read earlier in the service. There's a simplicity in her story that I think we've, we've lost in this modern conversation about church growth and health and strategy and planning and all the rest. Without going into all the details, this unnamed woman has an unlikely encounter with Jesus. He recognizes who he is and then goes running back to her village to tell everyone about how he changed her life. Just so spontaneous and free. Just so simple was her testimony. So authentic was her enthusiasm. It was contagious. And so the people of a village all make their way through the wheat fields to come and hear Jesus for themselves. And as they are walking through the fields, Jesus uses it as a perfect teachable moment. And he says, the fields are ripe for the harvest. That's just as true today. There are people who need to know Jesus. And the Samaritan woman, she didn't wait to take a class, didn't wait to participate in a church-sponsored program. She didn't create a marketing plan or launch a website. Jesus didn't even tell her to do it. She just did it. She was so filled with love for Jesus, awed by what had happened to her, she just had to. She had to tell others. It wasn't a church program. It was personal for her. It was personal. It was her mission. Is this gospel thing personal for you? Is it your mission? A few weeks ago, I had lunch in Manhattan with one of our members who works in finance on Wall Street. We talked a lot about work-life balance, how hard it is to be a witness for Christ in the workplace. But his point was, that you can find a way to share your faith if you really want to. If you're praying that God will bring you opportunity, he will. And he shared with me an email that he received, and he said I could share it with the congregation. Let me read it for you. Dear so-and-so, it's been a long time since we've touched base, but you were my mentor at the XYZ company. I, I wanted to reconnect with you because I have some major news that I know you will be happy to hear. Remember all of our talks and lunches going to Bible study. Remember how you told me about you and your family going to Mexico to build houses for families and putting a cross on the wall and praying together? Remember how you told me about the sanctity of marriage? Well, you will be happy to hear that I'm saved. I've been walking with the Lord since 2017, and I can't even begin to tell you the peace and tranquility it has brought to my life and the focus it has brought me. You planted those seeds early on, and I wanted to let you know that it was not thrown onto rocky soil, and it is yielding a hundredfold. I can never thank you enough. There is nothing better than getting an email like that. And that's our main challenge, to be phase two Christians who joyfully share the good news of Christ, who sow the seed of the gospel, who understand what it means to be committed to the mission of the church. Over Memorial Day weekend, I heard the story of an American soldier named Martin Tripto. In World War I, he served in the United States Army in France in that terrible, you know, brutal 
trench warfare. On July 28th of 1918, he was sent to deliver a message back to his unit's command post. And on the way, he was killed by an artillery barrage. After the battle, they found a journal in his pocket where he had written his personal pledge. Eventually, it was published in the newspapers, and it went like this. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Do we have any of that same bold commitment when it comes to the cause of Christ, when it comes to the future of our church? That's what we really need, the simplicity of bold commitment to Christ like that Samaritan woman. The kind of bold commitment that would make pioneer pastor Sheldon Jackson proud. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our church, for this community, this body, and all its different facets and, and, and manners, all the various kinds of people and different groups that we have. Lord, we thank you that we have become a place where Christ is known, where Christ takes the center and where we honor him in all things. And so, Lord, we just want your church to flourish. And we pray that you would stir up in us a commitment to your mission as expressed through this congregation so that other people might also know the joy, the simplicity, the wonder of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.